Hello everyone, this is Violex from Intelligence Check and you are listening to Tale of the Manticore. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore, Season 2. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here, you will find the unpredictability of old-school RPG paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. Chapter 6 begins with the party split. Phelan and Shawnee are making their way to a part of Silmoral known as the Cobbles. They plan to set a fire in a warehouse that belongs to an ally, or possibly even a member of their enemy, the Weeping Eye Thieves Guild. As they travel, we learn a little bit about how Phelan wound up in so much trouble. He had been working for the Royal Magus, a man named Carrick Malmar, the Basilisk of Whitestone Castle. Carrick had been a neglectful master, and so it had happened that when Lady Belagret, the petulant young niece of the king, came looking for the Magus, Phelan was in the laboratory, alone. Belagret had demanded that Phelan attempt to save her cat, which she had accidentally poisoned. With no choice, he tried to keep the pet alive, but Phelan was not an expert where such things were concerned, and the animal died. Enraged, Lady Belagret made spurious accusations to the prince himself against the young wizard, and Phelan had been forced to flee the castle. Shawnee leads Phelan around back when the duo reach their destination, and leaves him there, possibly to act as a lookout while she nimbly scales the wall. Once atop the roof, she hoists up a bag containing two flasks of highly flammable alchemist's fire. Meanwhile, Yellowfly and Tamlin have disguised themselves as city guards and are approaching Silmoral's inner gates. They'll need to pass through here without trouble before they can even begin their job. Between the Lines In the last episode, Shawnee tried to explain how thieves fit into the natural order of society to Phelan. She used a slightly flawed metaphor concerning hawks and snakes and mice. Do you remember that? Well, it put the idea of a hawk in my head. Let's put the story aside for a moment and imagine that we are a hawk, high in the sky and flying over the kingdom of Camertine in the world of Merith. We glide south over the wind-rippled surface of the lake, which sparkles beneath us. The lake now has a name. Blue Heron Lake. Located directly below is the major city of Silmoral, with little towns and villages radiating away from it, mostly to the east and west, hugging the crescent of the lakeshore. To the west are the towns of Westmire, Black Creek, and then Nepule, the annexed city-state. Going east are Mirpool and Rayford, with the towns of Domor and Rull arranged south of them. If we were to fly south, we would pass over Brannon and Wolf's Cliff Keep, and then Burke eventually reaching the accursed and empty Dwarven Forge known as Dwarvar in the Kasmiriath mountain range. But we have no business in the south. 
Instead, we circle around and scan the great city of Silmoral beneath us. More than anything, from the air, Silmoral looks like a snowman. A melting snowman, to be more precise. The city is made up of three flattened circles, each one larger than the next, and circumscribed by thick stone walls. The largest circle, the base of the snowman, is where most city folk live. Here we can find the Fallfallow Inn of Southgate and the Blue Heron Trading Company warehouse in the Cobbles. The Warren, where Yellowfly's gang lives, is here, too. There's also the High Town Market and the Great Cathedral, with its soaring bell tower. To reach the middle section of Silmoral, one must pass the Thurry Gate, named after an old regent of the kingdom. Not everyone is allowed through this gate. Only people of a certain status are permitted access. This section contains the wealthy Rosedale neighborhood, where Gamaluna lived and died. It also contains the Tower of Xavion, Phelan's former master. Importantly for the PCs, this is also where the city guard makes its headquarters. The head of the snowman has, comparatively, far fewer residents. This is where one can find the equally imposing and beautiful Whitestone Castle, where Lady Balagret and King Culfrey conduct their respective reigns of terror, small and large. Of course, entry to this part of Solmoral is strictly controlled. Whitestone Castle does not concern us for now, so let's use our hawk's vision and scan the middle section of the city. With vision this sharp, perhaps we can spot... Ah, yes, there they are, making their way to the city watchtower. Chapter 7 Part 1 Day 2 Just after 4 o'clock Party status Yellowfly 8 out of 8 hit points Tamlin 5 out of 5 Don't fuss with your helmet, said Yellowfly, without turning his head. And don't even think of looking back. I know what you think you saw. One of them looked right at me, I think, said Tamlin. It's just your imagination. If he was going to say something, he would have done it by now. We're all right. Yellowfly chuckled to himself. <laughs> if they'd caught us right at Thurigate, well, I wouldn't be able to look Lord Rabbit in the face. That's for certain. <laughs> they walked a ways in silence before Yellowfly spoke again. This time, his voice was dead serious. Tam, if they do catch us, remember the vows you spoke. They aren't just words. I'll die before I breathe one word about the church to those dogs, said Tamlin. There was iron in his voice. He really meant it. Then it was his turn to laugh and bring the conversation back to a lighter tone. Besides, a few years in prison could make me a wiser man. Don't even joke about that, replied Yellowfly. Once again, they walked in silence. It was rare for Yellowfly to come to this, the inner part of the city. And Tamlin, who had lived most of his adult life in Nepul, had perhaps only come here once or twice as a child. He had no memory of the place at all. There were things about it that made it feel almost like a different reality than that of the Warrens, or the Cobbles, or Southgate. For one, there was more color here, also more space, and fewer people. And the people that were here seemed better dressed, healthier, happier even. They made no attempt to avoid eye contact, and both men had to make a conscious effort not to stand out by staring at their feet as they usually did. They were now on an incline, climbing the hill that would ultimately bring them to the royal palace. But they wouldn't be going so far. The palace was not their destination. Since the Thurry Gate, they had easily seen the tower of the city watch poking out above the rooftops. 
A skinny pennant of green and black flew from a flagpole erected atop a turret which took the tower's 50-foot height up another dozen feet into the sky. When it came fully into view, they saw that the main body of the tower was a fat cylinder of mossy gray stone with fin-like buttresses skirting out from the bottom, one on either side of the single main entrance. There would be another smaller door around back, Yellowfly knew, but stealth was not their aim this evening. You know, began Tamlin, picking up roughly where their conversation had left off. When I joined the church, I expected that one day I might find myself stealing from our enemies. But, well, I never expected this. What do you mean? replied Yellowfly. Our goal here is to plant that medallion in the captain's room, correct? That's right. So it's like reverse stealing? Not exactly. Yellowfly absently patted his pouch where he had stowed the contraband. The medallion was given to Sindwon, the captain of the palace guard by Lofasia, not to Balak, who's the captain of the city guard. Even Princess Lofasia. She's the only Lofasia I know of. So we're trying to make it look like Captain Balak stole it from Sindwon. It's a bargaining chip. We may never need to use it. When we first stole the medallion from Sindwon, we had leverage over him. He could never admit to losing a gift from her royal highness after all. I'm sure he hasn't had a proper night's sleep since he realized it was gone. But this is better. Much. If we can plant it in Bellic's room, we'll get leverage over him, too. There's a well-known rivalry between the two men. If the medallion suddenly turns up in Bellic's office, no one will believe he didn't steal it out of jealousy. But would it not be easier to plant it in Bellic's home? Asked Tamlin. Easier, yes. Better, no. The captain is as shrewd as he is corrupt. He might find it if we hid it there. But he would not think to look where we're going to place it. Nobody would. That's why it's the best choice. Well, here we are. Your accent is better for this kind of thing. You do the talking. Me? What should I say? Say whatever is required to get us inside. December 1933. You'd expect Chicago to be cold, but not this year. It's hotter than a kiss between Harlow and Flynn, and just as thrilling. Trouble's blowing in the Windy City. Capone might be in the big house, but even a half-wit knows full well Al didn't leave the pitcher. But that's not stopping his lieutenants from squabbling over the scraps, and it sure as hell ain't stopping the other gangs from trying to knock Capone's outfit down a few pegs. Any palooks with some Tommies and attitudes are grabbing at that pie like a fat kid at Thanksgiving. But there's something brewing in Chicago's shadows. And it's not that next batch of bathtub gin. No, this is something that bites a lot harder and leaves a mark that won't heal anytime soon. My name's E.I. Wick, and I want to tell you about four palooks just trying to beat the breadlines and survive the day-to-day. But life's got other plans for this Private Jane and her three friends. To hear their story, then slide your feet to the dark side of the street and visit gunforhireap.com. That's gun with two ends. Gun for Hire. A Deadlands Noir actual play from Fear the Boot. The last episode ended with a pair of dice rolls to see if the duo's mission would be derailed before it truly even began. You might remember that I gave each of the guards at the Thury Gate a 5% chance, a 1 on a d20, to notice something wrong about the two imposter city guards passing through. As you've probably guessed, those two guards failed their checks. I rolled a 3 and a 14. There's another check coming up as Yellowfly and Tamlin approach the City Watch Tower's entrance. 
Tamlin will need to be quick on his feet and say something convincing if they're to get access to the captain's office. As I mentioned before, the guard at the tower door would not be expected to recognize them, or, more accurately, he would not become suspicious because he didn't know their faces. City Watch members are frequently traded with soldiers. This is by design. King Culfrey doesn't want his men becoming complacent and comfortable. He stirs the pot deliberately, and staff changes are a regular occurrence. Both Tamlin and Yellowfly have very average charisma scores, a 9 and a 10, so neither man could be thought of as a confidence man or a smooth talker. But all the same, it's on Tamlin to succeed or fail. I'm going to handle the upcoming situation with a simple reaction roll, 2d6. Higher is better, no bonuses. I'll make the rolls now, and then we'll see how it plays out in the narrative. My first roll is an eight. Good, but not great. I'll give the next roll a plus one. Rolling again. Uh, a total of five. Hmm, that's a little slip. One more try. An average roll here will be counted as a partial success. The roll. A nine. That's pretty good. Okay, here's what happens. The single guard at the gate wore the same black and green tabard over leather armor that Yellowfly and Tamlin had on. Most of his face was concealed by a half-helm with a nose guard and coif that revealed only a pair of pale blue eyes and a mouth with cracked, dry lips. Hello, gentlemen, and hail to King Calvary. What's your business? They were hoping to find someone half asleep, but this guard seemed alert and attentive. Tamlin's first words almost stuck in his throat, but he forced them out. Hail to King Calvary. Uh, we have a letter for Bellic. Something important in it, I'd guess. That last bit was an error. He reminded himself that, when lying, it was better to say less, not more. I can take it up. The guard frowned slightly. Nah, you just leave that with me. I'll be sure he gets it. He's not in right now, anyway. Tamlin did know that, but feigned surprise. Oh, well, I was told to put it directly in his hands, and if that was not possible, to put it on his desk myself, to be sure he would get it as soon as possible. The guardsman's forehead creased. Possibly he was trying to decide whether or not he had just been insulted. Who told you that? He wanted to know. Tamlin was not prepared for this question, but luckily the first name that came out of his mouth was the right one. Koch. There was the slightest pause, in which Tamlin found his hand drifting towards the weapon handle at his hip. Oh. <laughs> Sergeant Koch is a right bastard. Best do as he says. The guardsman stood to the side. He was still cursing the sergeant's name as they passed. Trust you, hedge-born <laughs> Inside, the tower was cool and smelled of the several torches that leaned in their wall sconces, extinguished for now. There was little else to see, just a table strewn with papers held down by a copper handbell, a weapons rack, and two buckets of water. On the far side of the room, a tight spiral staircase led to the second floor. Tamlin, with the yellow fly following mutely behind him, made straight for it. Which floor is the captain's? whispered Tamlin over his shoulder. No idea, came the reply. We'll have to poke about. The second floor was bisected down the middle by a wall set with a single door of banded wood. Opposite, the tower wall followed its natural curvature. Arrow slits were cut into the stone every four feet. It gave a decent view of the city and let in the breeze. Tamlin walked to the solitary door and put his ear to the wood. The BX rules gives thieves a special hear noise ability. But although Tamlin sees himself as a thief, he is not of the thief class and will only succeed on a roll of one. Let's see if Tamlin hears anything. Rolling a d6. Hmm, I got a four.
Hamlin looked at Yellowfly and shook his head. He was about to try the door handle when his companion beckoned him back. Tamlin obeyed, wearing his question on his face. Why did you- That's not it, whispered the elder rogue. How can you tell? No lock on the door. Probably a barracks. Probably full of sleeping guards. You want to say hello? I didn't think so. Come on. Yellowfly re-entered the corkscrew stairs and disappeared. Tamlin felt his face flush, but he had to admit, Yellowfly was smart as a whip. Then again, if the door they were looking for was going to be locked, how on Merith were they supposed to get inside? Chapter 7 Part 2 Day 2 Late Afternoon Party Status Shawnee 5 out of 5 hit points While Thalen waited at street level, nervously trying to determine what his role was supposed to be and, surprisingly, not entertaining any thoughts of escape, Shawnee finished hoisting up the bag containing the alchemist's fire. Once it was at her feet, she untied it and retied the rope to a secure and rigid-looking shingle. Then she picked up the bag and moved across the lightly angled rooftop to the side of the warehouse. Here, she lowered herself over the edge and then down a few feet until she could slip into the window she knew was there, pulling the free end of the rope in after her. She poured herself through the opening, as silent as a shadow, and found herself on a loft. From here, she could see the entire space, except for whatever was directly beneath her, of course. The afternoon sun lanced through the solitary window, illuminating a million motes of dust in the stale air and falling upon the loft's floorboards. Beyond was the main warehouse. As she had expected, the place was mostly empty. There were a few wooden planks leading up against the wall to her left. A trio of barrels were lined up against the opposite wall. If she stacked them all in a heap in the center of the place, she thought, she'd be able to make a good fire and still keep it more or less under control. At least the chance of it spreading would be smaller. It seemed a good plan as any. A little smile was just beginning to touch the edges of her lips when Chanet heard a sound directly beneath her. Unmistakably, those were footsteps. She froze, mouthing a curse. There wasn't supposed to be anyone here. There were only two kinds of people that would be here. It was either a guard or a squatter. Bad news in either case. She didn't have to wait long before the mysterious occupant revealed himself. A young woman, clad in dark brown leathers and wearing a sword at her hip, walked languidly towards one of the barrels and lifted the lid. While the woman helped herself to a double handful of water, or whatever was inside, Shawnee willed herself to be small and sank slowly into a crouch. There were also only two kinds of people who wore arms or carried weapons in town during the day. They were the members of the City Watch, and rogues like herself. The City Watch did not employ women, so for Shawnee, this meant conclusively that this person was her enemy, a member of the Weeping Eye. Regrettably, Shawnee only had a dagger with her, she had left the sword with Cole to ensure she would not draw any notice on the way here. And now she really did smile, but it was a bitter smile as the irony of the situation occurred to her. This was a full reversal of the last time she faced the Winx. Then, she had been the one holding a sword. Vessel Luna's tears, what on Merith was this person doing here? Why guard an empty warehouse? Shanae considered her options. She could abandon the mission, but that would leave her companions in the lurch. Besides, it might be noisy climbing back up to the window. She'd been lucky to remain undetected coming in. She could set fire here on the loft, but Alchemist's fire took time to work, and the woman below might find and extinguish the fire before it truly caught. No, there was only one real course of action. 
this person had to be dealt with. By now, the woman had wandered back under the loft and Chane was directly over top of her. She slid the knife free from her boot and started to creep to the edge of the loft floor. Suddenly, she stopped and bit her lip. What did she think she was going to do? Leap down on this woman with a bag of alchemist's fire in her hand? By the gods, she needed to be more careful, she thought to herself. This was a real predicament. If she set down the bags, they might rattle and she would give herself away. But she couldn't take them with her either. She remembered something she had heard Yellowfly say before. Most problems have solutions if you think about them long enough. But she didn't have the luxury of time to ponder and consider. Yellowfly and Tamlin were depending on her. In the end, there was nothing for it. She had to take the risk. Between the Lines I think we need to take a moment to discuss the specifics of Alchemist's Fire before we take the story any further. Simply put, it's an oil that ignites when in contact with air, and it burns hotter and longer than normal fire. Because its uses are limited to certain laboratory processes and, well, arson, it's quite a rare thing. While the compounds are inexpensive, it takes months to create a relatively small batch of the stuff. Furthermore, the special flask required for its intended use is a specific and fairly tricky piece of craftsmanship. Alchemist's fire is always used in small quantities because of its volatility. Shawnee is carrying two one-pint flasks of it. As mentioned before, the flasks are specially designed. They have long, skinny necks, which makes them extremely fragile, and they're stoppered with beeswax. Each flask is only half full of Alchemist's fire. The other half is water, which fills the flask right to the top. The water, being less dense, sits on top of the oil. When the wax stopper is removed and the bottle is placed on its side, the water drains out, drop by drop, slowly letting air into the bottle. Eventually, the air touches the oil compound and it explodes. But I don't want to mislead anyone. A flask of Alchemist's fire is not a delayed blast fireball. The explosion is much smaller, comparable to a Molotov cocktail. Flasks of Alchemist's fire are not valued for the size of the explosion they cause, but for the precision with which one can time it. Think of it as a fuse made of water. The fuse can be made longer by removing less of the wax stopper. For those who would prefer a visual explanation, I'll post some extra information on taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. Okay, let's get back to the game. You know, I actually feel sorry for Shawnee because while thieves are excellent wall climbers at low levels, they are pathetically bad at everything else. It's a marvel any thieves get past level 1. The BX rules give Shane just a 20% chance to succeed in her attempt to move silently. I briefly considered giving her advantage on the roll. I thought, she's just setting down a bag, it's not like she's sneaking up on someone. But on second thought, that is exactly what she's doing. In addition to setting down a bag of bottles, she still needs to get to the edge of the loft in silence if she wants to drop down on the woman and attack by surprise. Considering that, 20% seems pretty much on the money for how hard this will be to pull off. Okay, Shawnee, are you ready for this? Here's the roll. I rolled a 42. Chapter 7, Part 3, Day 2, Late Afternoon. Party status. Shawnee, 5 out of 5 hit points. There was a muffled clink as Shawnee set down the bag. 
She knew it would happen, but she winced anyway. She had just enough time for the thought to cross her mind that perhaps she really was unlucky before the other woman's voice called from below. Hey, who's up there? Shawnee quickly looked around her. There was nowhere to hide. Nothing up here but spiderwebs, rat droppings, and a pile of spare shingles. Now came the inevitable hiss of drawn steel. You wine-soaked scamalar. Think you can make a home anywhere you please, do ya? How'd you even get in here? Tell you what, though. I'm gonna go up there and cut open your belly for ya. Shawnee was the sort of person who followed her instincts first and thought things through later. Before she knew what she was doing, she transferred her dagger into her offhand, reached into the bag, and pulled out one of the flasks of Alchemist's Fire. The stairs to the loft clung to the wall. They were only about 20 feet away from her. Now she heard a foot creaking on the first step. Then the next. Then the next. She cocked back her arm, held her breath, and waited. Now, let's just see what we've got up here. As soon as the top of the other rogue's head was visible, Shawnee threw the flask. Shanae has a dexterity score of 15, which gives her a plus one on all missile attacks. The Weeping Eye Rogue is wearing leather armor and has an armor class of 11, so Shanae needs a 10 on the die to hit. There's no question of whether the flask will shatter. In fact, it's delicate enough that if Shanae critically fails her roll, it's going to explode in her hand. I'm also going to rule that even if she misses the woman, she'll still cause a point of splash damage. I'm not going to enter into combat just yet. This might be over quickly. Okay, I've got my yellow d20. Here's the roll. Uh-oh. I rolled a one. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you've enjoyed the show and would like to help to support it, there are a number of ways to do so. You can recommend the show online or to friends. You can like and retweet episode announcements on Twitter. You can pick up One Shot in the Dark or Encyclopedia Manticorica on DriveThruRPG. And finally, you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. My sincere thanks to everyone who supports the show in any way. Speaking of support, here's another one of your excellent reviews. This one is on Apple Podcasts and was posted by Woxie Slar. Woxie Slar writes, I was DM and had a player befriend a manticore, and so I went in search of information. While I have not learned much of manticores in this story, yet, I have found a most excellent adventure. The suspense is palpable and quickly addictive. The story gets under your skin in a real way. Hey, Woxie Slar. Now, I don't want to tell you or your players who to befriend and who not to befriend, but you know something else that gets under your skin in a real way? Manticore tail spikes. Have you had your tetanus shots? Just asking. At any rate, I sure appreciate your kind review. Thank you very much. Thanks also go to a couple of cast members who are new to Season 2. Playing the City Watchtower Guard is Andrew Fling of TumbleDye Games. TumbleDye has a new set of RPG core rules coming out soon called Trove Foundation. Keep your eyes open for that. And in the role of the Weeping Eye gang member in the warehouse, introducing Jess from Red Desert Roleplay. Thanks to both Andrew and Jess for their fantastic work. If you use socials and want to reach me, I'm at Manticore Tale on Twitter and Tale of the Manticore Podcast on Instagram. My email is taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. The story will continue in the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Do you like your tabletop RPGs to be grim, gritty, and grounded? If so, then Legend of the Bones is the podcast for you. A mix of old-school solo D&D and dark fantasy storytelling. 
In Legend of the Bones, the dice rule. There are no re-rolls, no fudging the dice, no meta-currency. The roll of the bones will determine the character's destiny and no one will be spared their fate. None shall escape the destiny of bone.